This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Brad Taylor. Brad Taylor is an engineer, founder, and father who has worked in Silicon Valley for the last 15 years, building digital marketing tools for some of the world's largest brands. In 2016, Brad had growing concerns about how those same tools and techniques were being used as weapons in one of the most divisive elections in our nation's history. And on March 14th, or Pi Day in 2017, Brad and his wife Amber launched Tech Stands Up, organizing a rally where thousands of like-minded technologists gathered in Palo Alto to urge other technologists to take socially responsive roles. Tech Stands Up continues to advocate for and build space where tech workers can become more involved in their communities. His movement continues to call on industry leaders to speak up against policies that harm its most vulnerable employees. Along with his continued leadership in Tech Stands Up, Brad is also the host of the Tech Stands Up podcast, a series dedicated to the intersection of technology and civic engagement at the local, state, and federal levels. He discusses the extraordinary impact that new technologies have on our society and how we can solve some of the most challenging problems we face today. Hi, Brad. Hello. So, Brad, this is an especially exciting episode for me to host because my work in ethical technology and pretty much everything that this podcast and the broader Technically Human Project really stands for and is really after comes out of a conversation that you started and that I joined almost four years ago uh, in the wake of the 2016 election when we were confronted with this new reality, which was the election of Donald Trump. And along with that election, a stark realization that not only were tech products and culture majorly responsible for the outcome of the election, but that there was also a real lack of responsibility by those in tech leadership in the social justice context in particular. And so now we're here four years later, and Donald Trump is nearing what should be the end of his term, if our democracy still stands. How are you feeling? Well, first off, Deb, thank you for having me and and the kind words. I, I can't believe it's been almost four years. But your question, how am I feeling? I'd say cautiously optimistic at this point, because now is when the real work begins. You know, it's easy to take power. It's harder to keep it. And we have to prove that the government can work for the people. And we need to continue the conversation about what role technology fits into that equation. You know, we still have a current president that refuses to concede the election at the time of this recording. And he's using social media to sow distrust in our electoral process by claiming large-scale voter fraud when there's no such evidence. You know, what's worse, though, are the enablers that help facilitate this behavior. You know, I expected this from Trump. I've been saying since 2017, I do not see a world, world where he stands up after the 2020 election and says, hey, it was a hard-fought battle, but the people chose a different path. I welcome our next president. I look forward to supporting them for the good of the country. I just, It's just not in his personality. And by enablers, I don't just mean his Republican allies. What I mean is the role that tech has played in helping to enable this 
you know, attempted coup and the ongoing policies that attempt to do nothing more than divide us. You know, it has been interesting to watch the way that social media is handled during this election, the spread of lies, disinformation coming from a sitting president. While I do acknowledge that there has been hard work that these companies have been doing, I think that there were some serious mistakes made, you know, like Twitter blocking the New York Post from posting anything in the run up to the election. You know, these uh, these actions have not helped, in my opinion, but rather made half the country just think that big tech helped Biden steal this election. And these are not easy problems to solve. And I do not envy any of my friends at these companies that 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 have these problems in front of them. Uh, but 2020 was a more divisive election than 2016, in my opinion. I do not think our country can survive 2024 unless we make some serious changes and really start to stand up for the communities that both helped put President-elect Biden over the top, but also for those who did not vote for him. I feel like this is the Democrats' last chance to prove that they are really looking out for the people's best interests and not corporations, including big tech. But also, we as citizens, no matter what industry we're in, we need to figure out how we can help Because democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires participation. And if you just want someone to come in and fix all the problems, you'll end up with authoritarians who claim they can fix all your problems. And if we don't step up to this challenge right now, we run the risk of leaving the door open for other authoritarians to come to power. I mean, this is a, I think, sharp and concerning diagnosis of where we are in the present. You mentioned at the beginning of your question that that you had feared and perhaps even anticipated some of what would come back in 2016 and 2017. And I wonder if you could bring us back to that moment for you, because four years ago, you founded that Tech Stands Up movement. And I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about your vision for the movement in 2016 and 2017. And then maybe... Maybe you could walk us through where you were four years ago. What led you to that point? (laughs) Yeah, well, honestly, Tech Stands Up started by accident, really. Uh, You know, as you mentioned, there was a lot of things happening in 2016 around that time. There was the tech meeting with Trump, where all the CEOs came and talked about, you know, how they could work with the administration. There was the Women's March, you know, and like any good social media addict, I was glued to my feed at that time. And, you know, I knew that most of the actual tech workers in these companies were either a shocked at what had happened, but then also starting to think about what role we played in this equation. Because, you know, the next morning after the election at Optimizely, we were in, in shock. You know, the origin story of, of Optimizely was how we used A-B testing and experimentation to get Obama elected. Now Trump used similar tools how do we feel about this? Is this ethically right? You know, and and I felt energized from going to the Women's March. My wife, she flew out to D.C. And, you know, one morning shortly after that, I, I rolled over and looked at my phone and I saw an interview that one of the tech leaders uh, that was on Trump's advisory board at the time. And I remember reading the article. It just made me angry. What, what did the article say? It was about Travis Kalanick and, his, and about Uber and just how well, you know, what was said in his election doesn't really mean that much. We need to work with him. I'm like, well, no, you know, the things that he's putting into place could have very, very a bad effect on people in our own industry. 
And, and it made me angry. I remember grabbing my laptop and just like angrily typing out this Facebook event. I think I called it Tech Against Trump. And I tweeted it out and I was going to have it on Pi Day because in geek uh, world, Pi Day is March 14th, so 3.14. And, you know, but that day that I tw- that I tweeted it out just happened to be the same day that Trump announced the travel ban. And that weekend, I was at the airport all weekend. Sergey Brin was there. I interviewed Gavin Newsom and everything just started coming in. I started to end up having tons of people say they were coming to the event, lots of activity. News organizations from around the world were calling me like, hey, what's this you know, tech against Trump thing? Is it in relation to the travel ban? What's this about? And you even had people like yourself reaching out like, hey, you know, I thought we were starting a movement. And, you know, the first thing that we did was we changed the name from, you know, Tech Against Trump to Tech Stands Up because, you know, we realized very quickly that, you know, Trump was the symptom, not the problem. We wanted to be standing up for something and not necessarily against it. And also, too, it has a play on in engineering teams. You usually have what's called a stand up where we all get together. We talk about what's worked. It's not what we might be blocked on. It's meant to be a very collaborative process. And I wanted to bring that kind of collaboration to this movement. So we we knew that very quickly that the next four years, we're going to see cuts to social safety nets. Certain communities were going to be targeted more than others. And we wanted to try to capture that motivation at the time to just try to do something and just turn that motivation into real action by supporting local nonprofits and civic leaders in any way that we could. You know, you mentioned the Women's March and and the Muslim ban. And if you remember 2016, 2017, there were a number of different movements mobilizing. As you mentioned, the Women's March, uh, protests against the Muslim ban, the March for Science, and those are just to name a few. Is Tech Stands Up resonant with these movements? And if so, how? Or if it is apart from these other social movements and, and mobilizations and trying to do something different, what makes it different? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, at the time there was a lot of what I would call identity activism, meaning like, hey, I identify with, you know, the Women's March or I identify with science. You know, there's a lot of this, you know, we stand up against these policies, this rhetoric that was coming out of Trump's mouth. (laughs) And me, I identify as a techie. I am a tech addict through and through. I play video games. I'm a JavaScript developer. I do my exercise in virtual reality. I'm on Zoom all day. I mean, that's what I identify with. I love the stuff that's coming out of Silicon Valley and the main reason I moved here. But I wanted our industry to stand together to prove to the world that we actually do want to make the world a better place. There's a lot of cringeworthy moments in the the show Silicon Valley, but that's one that, you know, you really did have that feeling that we're trying to make the world a better place. You know, Google had don't be evil. Well, you know what? I wanted our leaders to speak out about that. You know, this is what we ended up seeing in those four years were, in my opinion, very evil things. Kids in cages, you know, specifically targeting specific groups, sowing distrust and division among our citizens. And really, I just wanted to try to force the pressure from the inside to really take position on these issues and not just be some marketing speak that we were fed. So here's a thorny question that I have because I am from Silicon Valley and uh, I've spent a lot of time here. And these are people who graduate from good liberal progressive schools who are in one of the most progressive areas in the country who are founding these kind of techno utopian companies oftentimes on utopian 
ideals. I, I genuinely believe that these are, you know, generally people who want to do good. But on the other hand, as you noted, some of these products uh, go terribly wrong. And some of the leadership may or may not find sympathy with and, and find it in their best interest and upsiding with or helping to flourish people who do terrible things using these technologies. And then oftentimes, as you've talked about, they don't speak up or don't represent or call out that malfaisance. And I guess I'm just curious, do you see yourself as an aberration in Silicon Valley? Are there a lot of people who want to stand up or don't? I guess the broader question here is what happens in that dissonance between good people and a kind of industry that both facilitates and mobilizes terrible consequences and also oftentimes doesn't have a leadership that's vocal that speaks out against um, the wrongs that are oftentimes committed using its tools or in its name. Yeah, it's a good question because I truly believe most of the people that work in Silicon Valley and, and really in any industry, you know, they everyone wants the same thing. Well, what's best for their family? They want, you know, a steady paycheck. They want they want what's good for themselves and their families. And I understand that. I think where these dystopian views come in is really a less of an individual's want, but more of a organizational. So for instance, I know that not everyone in Silicon Valley thinks the same way I do. I'm glad that everyone doesn't. <laughs> you know, we need we need a diversity of opinions as opposed as well as a diversity of of cultures. But we do need to take a look at what the organizational structure does. There are some people that will look at you know, autonomous killing robots and say, yes, I want more of that. There are some people that will look at that and, and want to fight against that. But yeah, really the, the idea of tech stands up was really to just get people to mobilize. And while I agree that or, or realize that like not everyone you know, has my same beliefs, I think that it'd be wrong for us to sit back and not say something when we see something is is wrong. Yeah. And this is something that I struggle with as well in academia. You know, there's a tendency to want to call something out. And, and I struggle with that because I can write the think pieces and I can write the critical opinion editorials and I can get a number of different academics to take a stand as well. And then I try and understand how that fits in the broader picture, which is actually mobilizing change. What were you hoping to accomplish? Was it mobilization in terms of just vocality or were you trying or did you have the hopes of making something actually foundationally change? Like I said, Tech Stands Up started really by accident, uh, and I never meant for Tech Stands Up to kind of take a leading role, uh, but rather a supporting role. You know, I, I don't know the first thing about community organizing, activism, and at the time, I really only had a surface level understanding of, of a lot of the issues that were being talked about. I was a product of of the social media. I, you know, since then, I've, I've definitely read, I think I get through a book a week now, but when I moved to San Francisco from the Midwest, you know, I came for many of the reasons that a lot of people moved here. We were young, optimistic, thought that what was happening here in Silicon Valley was going to change the world forever. And in many respects, we have. Uh, many of the companies are using cutting edge technologies to solve some of the biggest challenges our world faces right now. However, you know, I let my idealism 
get in the way of my realism. Because as with any new technology, there's always a darker side. And and our goal was to do something and to not sit on the sidelines. I just didn't know what it was at the and I think I'm still trying to figure that out uh, because we did the only ways that we knew how. So we went, we threw a rally that got a lot of support, a lot of media attention and really started that conversation. Then we started hackathons. So I made I made a mistake of putting on the engineer's hat, like, oh, we can throw a hackathon to solve these problems, which I think one of your guests uh, in, in one of your earlier uh, episodes talked about how that's a horrible idea. And I, and I agree, <laughs> like you can't solve these giant issues over a weekend of coding. Uh, we even tried reaching out to Trump supporters. So we, we tried we tried a lot of different things to see what would stick, what would motivate people. Uh, but we just thought that this conversation needed to be started. I remember talking with uh, Eva Patterson, who's uh, the executive director at the Equal Justice Society, and she said, "Tech wants to do activism." Never thought I'd see that, and you know, see that day. Like I'm in, and you know, this is just something that hadn't been done, especially in our industries. So. The conversations we wanted to start was, you know, how can we support local communities using skills-based mentoring and donations? Like, how can we give back our skills? Because not everyone wants to go into the public sector uh, versus the private sector, but they still want to be able to help out. Also, how can we put pressure on our companies from within to not be one of those enablers of some of the Trump you know, policies that Trump was proposing. And then two, how can we make changes in our in own industry? Because, you know, one quote that I used to always say uh, in 2017, when news organizations were asking me, is like, well, why are you doing this? I'm like, well, you know, a lot of it is because I want us to stand up, but also too, those pitchforks are pointed towards Washington, D.C. right now. But if we don't make a change here, they're going to be pointed right back at us. And oh boy, are they. <laughs> like, I feel now that this conversation is actually starting to gain traction again. Uh, you know, the, the work you're doing with the Technical Human Project, uh, you have the Center for Humane Technology, uh, you have the Tech Equity Collaborative and the Tech Workers Coalition. You've seen walkouts at Google and Facebook over some of their business practices. And it's ultimately why I started my own podcast to continue these conversations that I believe need to be had. Was there anything that you accomplished that you didn't expect to accomplish? Was there anything that surprised you when you put the force behind it that you made happen? I think the biggest thing that surprised me was that was how much uh, media attention that the the rally got. So I think I was looking at the other day, and there was over two hundred articles, bunches, tons of videos that are still up there from worldwide. I, I didn't expect that whatsoever. I went going into that. Some of the things that didn't work out, I you know, like I said, I think I I made the mistake of putting on my engineer hat and wanted to start coding. It's a very common mistake that engineers make. They'll see this like product or this project they want to do and their first thing is to just like start coding and sort of trying to understand the problem and trying to start to learn about what problem you're trying to actually solve. And a lot of us didn't have any experience at the time in community organizing. Um, so yeah, the hackathons that we that we did weren't as impactful as I had hoped they'd be. Uh, we also connected a lot of nonprofits to developers for a lot of one-off projects. But what we really found is they actually need long-term support. And 
the ability for us to keep people motivated was really, really hard. You know, there's a scene in, in the opening of uh, The Social Dilemma, which is a documentary on Netflix, which I'm sure a lot of your audience has seen. There's this scene where Tristan talks about how he sent out this report and you know, everyone was talking about, yes, we need to do something. We need to mobilize. And you know, same thing. He thought he was starting a movement and then crickets. I kind of felt that you know, same way as you know, a lot of people were very interested, but it was hard to keep them motivated. So I really admire people that do activism and community organizing full time because life gets in the way. You know, I had recently had two kids, you know, remodeled a house and life kicks in. I understand that it's hard to be a full time activist and a full time you know, developer. I wanted to pick up on that word community that you used, because when you say tech stands up, I remember from the Pi Day rally, a large extensive community beyond people who I would have typically thought of as being in the tech community. So I guess the question here is, when you say tech stands up, who are you talking to? And I guess I guess part of that question has to do with the question of whose voice matters in these conversations. Who needs to stand up? Are we talking about tech workers? Are we talking about tech leaders? All of the above? So tech in itself is a very general term. I think, you know, there's a saying that says anything in the world that you're born into is just normal and ordinary. Anything that's invented, you know, between 15 and 35 is new in tech, you know, technology and anything invented after you're 35 is just against the natural order of things. And technology is coming into our lives in so many ways from businesses to, uh, you know, you're, you're interacting with tech more and more every day. Originally, it was to get the tech leaders to speak out. I'd been fed this you know, we're trying to make a world a better place. These value systems of collaboration, respect, transparency, you know, those, those values are under attack. Well, you as leaders, I believe, need to speak out. And if there's one thing that I knew that Trump was afraid of were people that are richer than him, people that have more power than him. <laughs> so what better yet than to have people that were richer than him speak out. And not just our leaders, but also to the knowledge workers. You know, the tech industry is not just made up of, you know, a bunch of engineers. It is made up of the cafeteria workers. It's made up of, you know, Amazon. Most of their workers work as delivery drivers or in the distribution centers. So, and a lot of the policies that were being presented at the time would have affected them way more than it would have affected me as a white, middle-aged, you know, male. I knew that a lot of the things that were coming up were not going to affect me as much as it would affect you know, some of the people that are working in some of the cafeterias. So I wanted to make sure that we were standing up for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for the other people in our community, that we're using our privilege, and it is privilege to be able to work at some of these companies, to be able to speak up for the people who may not have been able to speak up. And at the end of the day, when it says who needs to stand up, who am I? I'm, I'm really asking for anyone to have these conversations. You know, I'm looking for people to talk about these, these problems that are very, very real and that we need to solve very, very quickly because the technology is evolving much faster than we can govern it. So we need diverse perspectives. You know, I want to have Republicans. I want to have conservative views. I want to see what other types of of, of thinking we can do to stand up and to talk about these issues together in a collaborative nature. 
this is something that I think about quite a bit in the context of a project that I'm trying to get going on what we consider to be ethical technology. What kinds of jobs count as ethical technology jobs? Are they just jobs that deal with products that are ethically technological products? Are they jobs where maybe the job is not ethical, so to speak, um, but the product is, or a job is ethical, but the product is not? And I guess maybe you could pick up on some of the things you were saying there. The question here is, how should we talk about, so to speak, the radius? I'm, I'm sticking with the pie theme or the, the circumference, again, sticking with the theme of, of what counts as tech. You mentioned the cafeteria workers. I remember that on the day of the rally, we had civic leaders, I think Kamala Harris included, among other civic leaders. Uh, you had a representative from the United Farm Workers. How should we talk about what counts as tech? Yeah, so... When I was curating the list uh, of speakers and who would be at the events presenting, I didn't want it just to be a bunch of tech CEOs saying what needs to happen. I wanted our industry to hear the stories from the people that are outside of our bubble. I wanted to invite the president of the United Farm Workers uh, at the time uh, to come and talk about you know, the, the path of the American immigrants that their experience is much different than yours. When you sit through an all hands and the number one upvoted thing uh, that they want to talk about is the fact that your hint water is not stocked in a timely manner, we have much different problems than people working in, in the farms. And I wanted those stories to be told. And I think that technology has the ability to solve many of the problems that our world faces right now. I am a firm believer in that. But we have the best people in the world working on how to get you to click on something else, how to get you to spend more time in a digital world instead of trying to figure out climate change, trying to figure out you know, these, these very real problems that face our world right now. And a lot of that starts with hearing the stories of other individuals, other communities. And that was really the purpose of, of inviting so many different people from so many different walks of life is so that we could start to do that. We could start to collaborate together and not see, see it as a us versus them. You know, a lot of the communities that I invited had actually spoke out negatively about tech. And I, and I, and I, invite that sort of criticism because it's definitely criticism that needs to be talked about. But if we continue to operate in an us versus them mentality, then we really run the risk of leaving very important viewpoints out of the conversation. Has social responsibility in the tech sector changed if we fast forward for years? Has the nature of tech workers' relationship to their social responsibility changed? And if so, how? I think it has changed a lot. It's starting to actually become a necessity for recruiting top talent, young talent. You know, a lot of people coming out of college right now, they're expecting this from their organization. You know, a lot of my friends that are recruiters, one of the you know top questions they get asked is, what's your social impact? What's your diversity and inclusion team look like? What are your initiatives behind these sort of things? And you know, to your listeners, to your students, keep asking for these things because it's really going to be the only thing that drives you know any company to change. But you know, 
at the end of the day, it's when something major happens, there's a huge public outcry for change. We saw this over the summer, you know, with uh, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. You know, there's lots of of outcry internally at tech companies. You saw, you know, tech companies make, in my opinion, meaningless gestures like updating their logo, you know, like Amazon, you know, saying they support Black Lives Matter while simultaneously helping to create a surveillance state. You know, those, those types of messages don't necessarily work together. And the problem is that over time, as the headlines fade away from the feeds, so does the motivation to make change. You know, I remember seeing after the election in our diversity and inclusion group at Optimizely, there was nobody there. The election happened. We had a packed room, 50 people. And then after about three or four weeks, there's still the same five, 10 people. And it's really, really hard to keep people mo- motivated because everybody wants a movement. Everybody says, you know, oh, we need to do this, but it's hard to keep it change. And that's the big, that's been the big challenge in this. Now, one of the things that I really loved about the social impact that Optimizely gave was we went around and we figured out how we could help out locally. We donated a lot of our time to St. Anthony's, which is a local homeless shelter in uh, San Francisco. Uh, We also looked at how we could clean up the different parks. And a lot of tech companies are starting to use these as team building exercises almost. Pretty much like when team has an offsite, they go, they do, you know, some sort of social impact and then they go and they they do their their meetings. And I've seen this happen more and more, almost to the point where charities are actually starting to charge the tech companies to allow them to volunteer <laughs> because there's so many different companies wanting to do this, which I think is is great. And we want to continue to do that as long as it's done in a in in, in something that's actually helping and not just something to just check the box off to say, oh, we give back to our community. I wanted to ask what should, in your view, be done to push the industry but toward more ethical practices? Are we talking about more community service days to make uh, technologists and folks practicing aware? Are we talking about legislative and policy shifts? Um, And if so, what legislations or policies? Are we talking about social pressure, independent oversight boards? What in your view needs to happen? You know, (laughs) that's the question everyone's asking because you know, at the end of the day, I'm just a JavaScript engineer and I don't claim nor have I ever claimed to know any of the answers to these extremely hard problems. But I do see that there are some problems out there. And the main ones that I'm focused on right now are, you know, how do we make it so that our attention is not being sold to the highest bidder? And this is a hard problem to solve because, you know, most of my career has been in digital marketing, which the whole concept of it is to get your attention. And, you know, I spent four years of my career bringing experimentation to every company. And for those who don't know, like basically A, B, and testing and experimentation is to this basic point. If you think that the button color should be red and I think the button color should be blue, well, we'll run an A, B test and see which one performs better. That's a very simple example. And as a matter of fact, if you use the internet between 2014 and 19, you were most likely in an experiment that I helped create in one way or another. Can you give us an example? Many of the companies that we 
used uh, that used optimizely you can go on their own website and see what those are so if you ever visited any of those companies i can't talk about specific experiment details but some of the things that they would test was you know what messaging works better if someone clicks on this ad does it say the same thing when i continue over uh you know you're you're basically trying to to get engagement because at the end of the day i tell my clients you know what are your goals and who is your audience because with enough information about your audience you can influence them to behave in a way that aligns with your goals. You know, that's one thing when you're getting them to make a decision on whether or not to buy a, a piece of clothing or fill out a lead form. It's a whole nother thing when your goal is to undermine and destroy democracy. You know, what happens when the person that's in charge of that has different goals than yours? I mean, and I don't see this as a political issue. You know, this is a human rights issue. And I think that we need to put regulations and oversight in how that data can be used to influence our political process. Hands down, this is something we need to be addressing first and foremost and do it in a way that does not infringe on our First Amendment rights. It's a very hard problem to solve. That's one thing I think that we can actually be doing to drive more ethical practices and that needs to be taken a look at. The other thing that we really need to look at is how technology can modernize our government and civil service. We are starting to hear you know, cries from both sides of the aisle, like our voting system is outdated, antiquated. We see you know, unemployment checks being ran on Cobalt, which for those who don't know, is a 40-year-old programming language that nobody uses anymore. Our systems are so out of date, it's ridiculous. And I'm sick and tired of seeing tech companies ask for tax breaks that would have normally gone to helping those services be used to go into the pockets of their shareholders. We need a SaaS software apprenticeship program. So SaaS is software as a service. It's the tools that are used by lots of the websites that you use. And I feel that you know, if we had an apprenticeship program where SaaS companies would quit charging governments premiums more than they charge enterprises and give their employees the chance to work in the public sector, even like, for instance, if you're an employee of XYZ company and that government uses it. Well, SaaS companies all have these things called solutions architects, which basically means, hey, we made a very complicated product and here's someone who's can tell you how it works. Because <laughs> in technology, it's it's one thing having the software, it's a whole different thing about implementing it. And I think that our industry can help facilitate that and implement these things across our private sector to help modernize government. And to be honest, I think that it would be great for the businesses themselves because they'd have more real world information about how their products are actually being used. I wanted to ask you a follow up question about the legislation that you were saying we urgently need. What would be an example of this kind of legislation or policy? What would you see as a necessary and influential legislation or policy shift? It's such a hard problem to to solve because in one case, I am a firm believer in the freedom of speech. I do not believe in censoring. I do not believe in in censoring speech. I believe that the best antidote to bad speech, whether it be disinformation, misinformation, lies, uh, is better information. I am a firm believer of that. The problem is, is that I don't believe that the tools that are currently being used right now, like I forget what Twitter's thing says about half of Donald Trump's tweets, but it's like something in the longs like this is not correct or this has been disputed. What 
I'm looking for is, you know, if you saw that tweet, instead of just saying this blanket statement, here is other facts. Here's other information that's in opposition. And then the same thing when you're seeing stuff in your own bubble, trying to uh, get a more balanced look at what's going on. I don't equate lies and misinformation to balance by any means, but you know, we all kind of get in this kind of spin bubble uh, that we're in. And to be honest, I think that these companies are looking for this regulation. And one of the quotes that Jack Dorsey said in the recent, which seems to be a monthly thing now, uh, where Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg go and talk to Congress, uh, Jack Dorsey said, you know, it's it's less about the speech, but more about the algorithms and to, to some effect like that. And, and I completely agree with him on that because at the end of the day, I think that we need a lot more governance around the algorithms that help both recommend the content that we view and also the algorithms that help target content that we view. So what you see in your feed is not a chronological list. This has been curated by AI. It's been created by algorithms that I will be completely frank with you. Even the engineers don't know how they work in a lot of cases. You know, they have different levers they can pull. I really believe that we need to have some sort of governance over that algorithm and those algorithms of how they disseminate news and information needs to have some sort of oversight, whether that be, you know, those algorithms are open sourced and governed by a, like, imagine if you had a news algorithm. Like anything that was news organizations was done by an independent oversight committee that instead of their rewards is more engagement, their reward is more a context uh, about the news that you're receiving. What kind of world would we live in there as opposed to, you know, what can get the most outrage? I don't know the answer to it, but I think these are questions and, and things that we need to think about, about how we break up, not the companies, but the algorithms that govern our lives. I want to shift now to specifically talk about the intersection of ethics and technology. And I think a lot about this topic, obviously, but most of what I do is exactly that. I, I think about it. I'd love to get your perspective on the topic as a practitioner from your position on the ground, so to speak, or in the middle of the action. What do these two words put together as a term, ethical technology, and those two words separately, ethics and technology, mean to you? I see them as separate terms because technology in itself is not ethical or unethical. You know, it's it's how we as humans use that technology. You know, from the beginning of time, you know, with the invention of fire, you could warm yourself or you could burn your neighbor's house, house down. Uh, it's how we end up using it. Uh, no technology is good or bad. And to be honest, I think my inspiration of how technology should be used comes from my love of science fiction and in particular Star Trek. I think that these types of media, uh, particularly in sci-fi, show us a visions of how technology can be used and what's possible. Things like in Star Trek, it makes me question like how our economic system would even work in a world where you can literally replicate anything. 
you know, how do we create a system based on contributions to society and not tangible products that are sold? So when I hear about ethical technology, it's less about the technology and it's more about how we as humans implement that. Do other technologists talk and think about ethics uh, in your experience? If so, what conversations are happening on the ground? I, there's definitely talk about it and, and it really depends on where they work. Uh, you know, some of my friends at Facebook, you know, this is very top of mind, obviously, for them right now. A lot of them are starting to question whether or not they want to work there, whether they want to continue on. Some are actually going towards there. I even said, like, if, if there was one tech company I would go and work at, big tech company, it would be Facebook. Because at the same time, while I, I disagree with a lot of things they're doing, a lot of my friends are actually going there because you're only going to solve the problem if you're there in the room. So yeah, there these questions are being being talked about. And some of the issues that I hear about and I talk about on my podcast are like, how can we control the spread of misinformation without infringing on First Amendment rights? That's one of my biggest things. But also, how can we, as the tech industry, help the communities that are disrupting as you know, more jobs get automated over the next few years. Um, how can we work with local governments to help modernize? How can we provide more opportunities to underrepresented minorities and build diverse and inclusive teams? How do we build more governance about the algorithms? Also questions about should this technology be used with the military to produce things like autonomous weapons and global surveillance systems? And you know, should we be building technology that should be used by governments to help police and monitor the systems? And at the very least, how can we fix this massive income inequality that the technology industry faces and is only making worse every day? I'm hearing what you're saying about the problems that ethically minded technologists face in the practice and on the ground. As a technologist who's exceptionally ethically minded and socially responsible, what are some of the challenges that you have faced in trying to practice ethical technology? What gets in the way? I think the biggest thing that gets in the way is a very narrow view of what you're trying to accomplish. So in a lot of these tech companies, what you don't see is you may have a team of engineers that the only thing they work on are the little emojis when you click the like button on Facebook. There could be you know such a myopic piece. And, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to create more engagement or whatever your, your metric is for that quarter. You are kind of looking at the bigger picture because if you're using this technology, especially you kind of get that. But a good example of this where it kind of, I even went against my own thing is, you know, I created a headline testing plugin that <laughs> is used by certain New York magazines, I won't say who, uh, to test uh, salacious news headlines. It's still my biggest regret to this day. I hated even at the time clickbaity type stuff, but it wasn't about that. It was like, well, I'm helping these media companies get more engagement with their articles. You know, I even wrote an entire blog post about it that said, you know, don't make it clickbaity, don't do this. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're not, they're, they're going to use it for clickbaity crap <laughs> that gets engagement. So just focusing on that like myopic metric that, that you're trying to move without looking at the bigger picture of what you're trying to solve is definitely something that can get in the way and something that, that can be in your blind side. Do you see any changes or shifts in how folks in tech culture and production are thinking about the ethics of what they do? You mentioned a couple of people, you know, 
who are speaking some reservations about working at Facebook. You mentioned that you want to go to where the problems are. What, if anything, are the people you know in tech culture or production thinking differently than they might have four years ago about what it is that they do and what it is that they want to do? I think that we're absolutely seeing this sort of movement. I think that a lot of this has come from the recent tech lash or the backlash on tech, and rightfully so. I think that you know we're starting to look more inward about, okay, these are technologies that, yes, do have a lot of good. But one of the things that I always said is that you know when I moved to California, I let my inspiration or my, my optimism get in way of my realism. And I think that that we had those blinders on. A lot of people, especially the people that I know, when they came, they're in their mid-20s, early 20s, right out of college. It was a much different time in Silicon Valley. And now a lot of people that I know are getting older. They're starting to look at the work that these tech companies are doing and starting to really think about, okay, here are the things that could go wrong. How do we start to fix these? And there's been a lot of great movement from particularly the documentary, The Social Dilemma, the work that you've been doing as well. So I think that I think finally, uh, people are starting to realize that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. And I'm really looking forward to continuing that conversation. So that's our tech workers and our tech adjacent thinkers. What about tech leaders? Are they thinking differently? Are they working differently? It really depends on the organizations that they lead. I think that if they're not thinking about this, they're going to have a very tough future out of them because with the social inequality that you know, is being driven in large part by these tech organizations, when people start seeing you know, these leaders in tech that are just tripling, doubling their wealth during this, this pandemic, you know, that's if they're not thinking about these things, if they're not, they're going to have to start. Either they're going to get pressure from the inside, from their own workers, or they're going to get pressure from the outside, from their investors. You know, in 2018, there's BlackRock Financial. And for those who don't know BlackRock Financial, they hold $7 trillion in assets. And their CEO, writes a letter every single year and into the and since 2018 it has been very clear that if you're not thinking about how your company affects the world socially we are not going to invest in you so after that 2018 letter you saw a lot of companies microsoft amazon talk about oh we're going to zero emissions this didn't all come out of just spontaneous, like, oh, we feel good. It was, oh, crap, the money is going away. So I think you're really starting to see some some movement in that area. I had Todd Johnson on the podcast a couple of uh, weeks ago talking about socially responsible investing. I think that's a big part of the puzzle that you're pointing toward in terms of how we get tech leaders to think differently. So I appreciate you pointing that out. That's definitely something I think to, to keep watch over. I had a follow-up question for something that you touched on when we talked about tech leaders, and I wanted to kind of circle back to thinking about where we were in 2016, 2017, when you initially conceived of the Tech Stands Up movement, which was hoping to get tech 
tech leaders to stand up. Here we are three weeks after the election, a second different election in 2020. And in those three weeks post-election, when it has been, I think, pretty definitively uh, understood by the vote counts that Joe Biden has won that election, there are continued disputes by uh, the White House, by Donald Trump, by his, so to speak, enablers. And I guess that we're at another moment where tech may have an opportunity to stand up. As you pointed out, Donald Trump speaks to and listens to people who have money and who have positions of leadership. And I can think of very few people in the United States who have the kind of money and leadership as tech leaders do. Do you see a responsibility in this moment? Do you see an opportunity in this moment? Do you see the mobilization of change coming from the sector in any potentiality right now? Uh, If so, what are the responsibilities? Well, I think first and foremost, our responsibility to the world and to history is to not allow the weapon of the coup be social media and technology. It has been, you know, Twitter has been his weapon to mobilize his base, but also to sow distrust in our government and to divide us. And while I still agree that censoring someone is not the answer, we have to stand up to, and this doesn't just go for technology, it goes for all of industry. I had on my podcast, you know, uh, Shahid Buttar, who talks about, you know, the rise of fascism and how, you know, it's usually a cooperation between industry and between governments. And there is never in the history of our civilization been an industry more powerful than the tech industry is right now. And say what you will about whether or not that power is just and what they do with that power, we owe it to future generations to one, not allow these platforms to be used for political arrests, for trying to sow distrust in our government, but also to, if you're working at one of these tech companies, I think the one thing you have to ask yourself is, am I okay with how our products are being used? And if the answer is no, and and you have the ability to, you should really consider leaving and starting your own business or going to work for another company that is working for your values. Uh, Speaking of which, you recently started your own tech company. Tell us about it. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, about a couple of years ago, I started uh, my company with my best friends who I've known for 20 years. We, we were friends in college. And, and honestly, we've been focusing on how can we make the tools that we use in enterprise businesses easier and cheaper so that more people can, uh, can have access to these products without a developer. And just for our listeners, what is enterprise business? Enterprise businesses. So think about the, the websites that some of your largest companies have, like Amazon or name your enterprise business. Well, the technologies that they use are readily available in the form of what's called SaaS, software as a service. But the problem is, is that it requires a lot of resources to put this together. Yes, if you do A-B testing and experimentation, that is what made Amazon so great and what made Facebook so great. But things like this, it's it's very hard to do. So what we're trying to do is we're creating low-code 
no-code solutions so that anybody uh, can build these tools in both the private and the public sector. And we're completely self-funded, zero VC backing, because I didn't want uh, you know, anyone uh, trying to dictate how we, which positions we, we go in. But our main product, which is in private beta right now, we're planning on launching 2021, uh, but we're giving to nonprofits for free. And we're also looking at how we can give discounts to governments instead of charging them a premium, which is a very common practice in, in B2B business to business software, uh, but also how we can possibly make them free for the local governments that our own employees are in. Uh, we're a fully distributed workforce and we want to, for instance, if the city of Oakland wants to uh, you know, build these, uh, we want to help them not just with the software, but also with the services. So somebody who considers themselves, and I think that, that this would be true for you, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that this would be true, an ethical technologist and um, somebody who thinks about what they're doing through an ethical lens, what are you doing differently? What are you paying attention to that you might not otherwise pay attention to? What are you building or how are you building things based on the, the premise of wanting to have an ethical technological product and culture? When I'm thinking about building ethical tools. It's hard to say because the, a lot of the tools that I deal with are very, very, in my opinion, like it's a content management system. Can that content, can that content be you know, used to disseminate you know, disinformation? Of course. Could it be used to you know, help just power some marketing site? That, of course, as well. So when I'm thinking about what I'm doing in my own personal life in terms of like my ethical technology and how we build this is First and foremost, I think it goes into hiring a diverse team. Our team is based around the world. We have uh, team members in Turkey, Chile, Uruguay that are that are that are members of our team, and we take in their feedback. And they've actually been able to give us a lot of feedback on the products that are both cultural, but also you know making the product better. So I think having more diverse opinions and more diverse backgrounds can help you to build an ethical company uh, as opposed to thinking about the ethics of one individual. So our audience is, I think, majorly composed of undergraduates who may represent the next generation of technologists and perhaps humanists who want to go into the tech industry. If you are hiring somebody to work for you, either a humanist or a technologist or somewhere in between, would you consider their ethical orientation in your hiring? And if so, how would that factor in? What would you look for in terms of skills or background or self-representation to indicate to you that this new employee would be somebody that you would want to work with, somebody that you might even um, consider ethical? To be honest, it's hard to interview for. I mean, you're always going to have rogue actors, no matter what your hiring practices are. You, you know, if someone wants to be unethical, I've seen you know unethical practices from every background that that you can think of. But I, I work in a very you know trust but verify uh, kind of uh, way that I will trust you 100% until you give me otherwise. But I'm also not going to give you the keys to the castle. I'm not going to let you you know give you access to you know customers' private information. That trust is earned. So I don't think the goal should be to try to hire for like ethics. I don't even know 
how you could hire for that. But I think that, you know, going back to what what we institute at, at my company is, you know, things like the Rooney rule, making sure that you interview people in lots of different backgrounds for a particular role. Uh, because where I've seen problems and unethical, whether it be a corporation, whether it be governments, whether it be movements, is that a lot of times the unethical consequences of those organizations are due to the fact that their thinking is very pigeonholed. And it's it's we're all thinking the exact same thing. So you're not hearing the the differences in what could make the product better, the company better. And you're kind of going towards this goal, which in some cases can be very good, but history has shown us in other cases, it's been very bad. So here's a follow-up question, one that actually uh, came from a student at Cal Poly. He wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the power of technologists looking for careers. In other words, people on the position of saying yes or no to a job. In one of your interviews, you said, and I'm quoting you here, not only is the tech industry a very powerful one, but its employees are in extremely high demand, unlike in any other industry. If you don't like the political stance of the company, you can just simply take your work elsewhere. That's the quote. To what extent does this actually work? What kind of power do technologists really hold? And how do you get that power? And if it's a question of exerting that power in the face of an ethical challenge or an ethical stance, how how does change occur? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'm really glad to hear that your students are asking these types of questions because honestly, I wish I had asked myself these types of questions at the beginning. Because when I started Tech Stands Up, I was in a bubble. And to a greater extent, I still am. And you know, looking at back at some of my past interviews, I, I cringe when I hear myself say things like, we want to hold tech companies to our values. Well, whose values are they exactly? Are they my values? Is it you know your values? You know, Everyone has a different version of doing the good, as, as, as you like to uh, say. And you know, you're right. For every person that thinks that like locking kids in cages is is important, there are people that think that this is acceptable. And there will be someone that will be willing to take that job. Now, when you're talking about the position that technologists are in, I'd say even greater now that engineers are even in higher demand. Because what I what I meant by that was that you know, some people absolve themselves of responsibility by saying, well, I created the tool. It's not my problem what it's used for. And it's the same argument the gun industry takes. What I meant that is if you don't like what your company is doing, then you should not stay there. If you find out that you know your, your software was being used to hunt down immigrants, you know, maybe you don't want to be a part of that. And not all tech workers have the luxury. I completely understand that. But for those who do, for us knowledge workers, for the ones that are in super high demand, you know, the question is, how do you get this power? Become an engineer. Like, (laughs) and it's the sad state of things that if you're an engineer, you do have power. You can, if, if you're one of these knowledge workers, you do have power. Your bosses do listen to you. And, and to be honest, even if you're not affected yourself, at least speak up for your coworkers and your neighbors that might be affected. Do I think that it can create change? Absolutely. If you want to force an industry in a capitalist system no matter how powerful it is, even big tech, 
If you want to make them create change, you have two options. First, you can stop using their products. We vote every day with our dollars. You know, I stopped using Facebook after the after shortly after the election or after Tech Stands Up. I found myself way more on Facebook than I wanted to be, you know, trying to, uh, after the election. So I just stopped using it. I, I use it every now and then to post my podcast, but that's it. The other way is to basically starve it of its raw inputs. And in this case, the raw inputs of technology company companies is your knowledge and your expertise. And to a greater extent, the technology industry is already doing this to themselves by not paying taxes in a lot of cases, starving uh, education systems, healthcare systems that would help develop new workers. They're almost doing this themselves. And if you feel that your values are different than the products you're building, then yeah, I say leave. And whether or not you can create change, you know, there, there's a quote that is very famous that says, you know, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world because indeed it's the only thing that ever has. So yes, I do think it can create change. I can't not ask you a question about the moment that we're in, in terms of COVID, social distancing, and the role that, of course, technology plays in all of the new ways that we communicate in this age, where all of our interactions are hypermediated through our technologies. What conversations are happening around the moment that we're in, in the tech sector? What changes and innovations and ideas and shifts are happening in this moment? And do you think that anything happening here or everything happening here is here to stay? So COVID has been a giant wake-up call, I believe, to the world. It is the first problem that our world has gone through is the entire world since World War II or even the 1918 you know, pandemic itself. And while this may have happened 20 years ago, it would have been a lot different if you think about it. Like we're able to Zoom, we're able to have this podcast even. We're able to do a lot of things that 20 years ago we would not have been able to do. But the one thing that COVID has done is it has only accelerated the change that was already happening. We are already seeing this move to digital. I used to say to my to my wife, you know, if we get through the 20s, we're going to be good because we're going to see so much change in this decade. What it looks like in 2030 is going to look nothing like what it is now. There are technologies coming out like CRISPR to be able to cure diseases, cure even the way that the new vaccines for COVID are being developed and gene therapy, the was it mRNA uh, versions. Like these are technologies that are going to just transform our understanding of life in ways that we don't even see happening. You know, I supported Andrew Yang because he was the only one that was talking about the shifts that were happening and what we needed to do. The, the threat of automation, the threat of, you know, what happens when in five years, years from now, your delivery driver is not a driver anymore. It's a robot that comes there, you know, with your food, with your, with your Instacart delivery. These are the things that companies are working on. Yet out of 50 states, the number one or two profession is driver. What are we going to do in that situation? What are we going to do? And, and all while the tech companies have doubled and tripled in value during this. I read a stat that the amount that Jeff Bezos net worth has increased during COVID, he could pay every single one of his employees $105,000. That's just ridiculous. So yeah, these changes are not going away. 
they have only accelerated this as what's happening. So I still stand by my my statement. If we make it through the twenties, <laughs> I think we're going to be in a good place. But I'm afraid that the social change that this brings is going to take a lot of hard decisions that I don't know we're prepared to make. I mean, I can't hear that and not ask you. What should we do? What are some of the basic ideas that come to mind for you when you say that the number one job in all of these states are drivers and they're going to be obsolete with these kinds of technological innovations? What in your mind are some of the solutions that you would push for as a technologist watching these happening and having the foresight and the vision to know where it's going to go? We have to invest more in our education system, 100%. We are starving ourselves of the raw input of being able to create these new technologies. It's not that the jobs are like, you know, throughout history, you know, new technology has created new jobs, but at the same time, you need a certain level of education to be able to participate in that economy. Um, Not everyone needs to be an engineer by any means in the tech industry. There's lots of people, I'd say actually most of the tech industry is made up of non-engineers, the the people in marketing, the people in HR, the people doing sales. there's, There's a big ecosystem. You don't necessarily need to be in. But education is first and foremost what we need to invest in. And I think that tech companies would be good to invest in their local communities in those education systems, like, you know, make a Google Academy. And then at the same time, I think too, helping our aging population. You know, if you spend an entire lifetime providing profit for these companies, especially the intention-based ones, where you're selling my data as a profit, guess what? I think you should contribute to that retirement. You've made it, you've, you've spent my entire life, you know, making a profit off of my data then you know what? The tech companies should probably give back to that. And those are two areas that I think really need to be addressed, both in the in the education and also the healthcare, the aging population there. Because uh, if we don't stand up for those communities and, and start making changes there, it, it's not going to end well, I don't think. One final question, uh, but before I want to ask it, I just want to mention to our audience that uh, Brad is astonishingly coherent and eloquent on (laughs) little to no sleep. Because in addition to starting a new company, he and his wife have just welcomed a new baby into the family. How are you feeling other than tired? (laughs) <laughs> well, tired definitely. I, I to be honest, I have to to give it all to my to my wife. If men had to have babies, I think we would be uh, a much smaller population because I have to give it up to my wife. She is up. She has to pump. You know, every two hours, she's staying up with with Trista. My daughter. I'm taking my time off in January to spend time with her. We kind of, and if anyone that has the privilege to be able to do paternal leave, I definitely recommend splitting it up between your partner uh, because it allows you to have more intimate time with your child. We did that with our first kid, but I, I honestly have to give it up not only to my to my wife but also my mother-in-law, who's helped out tremendously during this whole thing. I know I said one last question, but how are you feeling? <laughs> Isn't the last question I had in mind? Um, but the last question does have to do with the next generation, with what you're hoping and envisioning your kids will inherit, what the next generation of technologists can do as they move beyond college into their careers and then on to build the world that your kids are going to live in. And just as a side note, our class just watched WALL-E. That was the final 
a piece of material for our class. And many of us left our discussion about the film thinking about how we would want to leave the world for those who will come into it. And insofar as tech is part of that world and insofar as tech is part of what will craft that world, what can the next generation of humanists and technologists do to craft it well? And this is really the last question, but I try to ask everyone I host on the podcast a question so that even though I already said I asked the last question twice, I'm still asking it as an addendum to it. Are you optimistic? I've obviously been thinking a lot about this, about the next generation. Since you know, doing tech stands up four years ago, I've had two children of my own. And, and, you know, Barack Obama once said that everything you need to know in life, you can read in a Dr. Seuss book. And before I had kids, you know, I knew of Dr. Seuss, I, but I never really read it. And, and one of the things that my son has me read to him every single night is the Lorax, which for those who don't know the Lorax, it's really a sad tale in a way, because it's a story of, uh, of the Wantzler. It's a businessman that comes to this marvelous place. He finds these marvelous trufflia trees and starts cutting them down and making thneeds, which everyone needs. And, you know, he believes he's doing no harm. He just chopped one tree. And there's this scene in the book or that the brown barbalutes, they come and they're in a line. And there's a line in there that really sums up what text response has been so far. And it says, I, the onceler, felt sad as I watched them all go. But business is business and business must grow, regardless of crummies and tummies, you know. I meant no harm. I most truly did not. But I had to grow bigger. So bigger I got. And every time that I get to that place in the book, my son always points to the bears and looks at me with the saddest look on his face and cries. It's like, why? And to be honest... I don't want us to be the onceler. I don't want us to be the the business, you know, and this goes for the tech industry, but it also goes for a lot of different industries. You know, we have to figure out a way that we do not end up chopping down all the trufflia trees. You know, what's going to be that last trufflia tree? Is it going to be the attention? And is it going to be something with climate change? Is it going to be a nuclear warhead that goes off? Now, those are definitely some depressing things. And, you know, it's something to read that your 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 son at, at night, uh, you know, where the trufflia trees are all being chopped down. But at the end, he says, you know, here's a trufflia tree, plant it. And one of the things that I'm optimistic about is when we had hackathons, it was the young people that came out. It was, the, it was the students. You know, we saw even in this recent election, you know, kids, you know, I say kids, but, you know, people using TikTok, you know, to, <laughs> to prank the president, make him think that he had more people coming to his rally than ever before. We also see kids are actually starting to use these technologies in ways that we never even thought of because you know they grew up with these you're starting to see where parents would be very you know worried about you know my kids won't get off their devices uh, coming and saying my parents won't get off their devices so you know i think you know when you're thinking about the next generation and the next people that are coming into these industries is that you may cur- trust the current people that are in charge you may come into one of these industries, but at the end of the day, these are corporations and they will live on past you and me. And there may be a next day, the next person that comes by may not have the same ethics as you. The thing that I always say is 
you know, if, if you think the thought of Mark Zuckerberg being in charge of Facebook is scary, think of what if Trump was in charge of Facebook and controlled all the information you saw. So you have the power to make a change in these industries. You have the power to stand up to executives, government officials. And one of the things that I always ends my podcast with is the quote from the Lorax, which is, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. Thank you, Brad. Thank you.